0: the Tender Heart of Strange Times, a series of audio love notes during this strange time to be alive from the Yoga Writer Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Carroll. Thank you so much for listening. And today we are going to talk about the cult of self-improvement. Now, you, dear listener, are smart as hell. And not just because you're listening to this, though I would say that definitely makes you smart, (laughs) but you're probably the type of person, if I may so assume things about you, you're the type of person who asks the big questions out of life. You're not blindly suckered into the trash cycle of consumerism, buying things because you feel some deep existential void and you think a new pair of yoga pants will do the trick at filling it. And as you know, consumerism and advertising run on one very simple but very powerful psychological formula. Quote, I am not good enough as I am in this moment. Therefore, I need fill in the blank." End quote. And I would venture to say you reject this formula to a large degree. You understand in a palpable way that neither a fancy car nor an off-grid tiny home filled with succulents will not enhance your sense of self. And I'm using the self with the capital S, your true self. In yoga, that's what's known as the Atman, the eternal, indomitable, indwelling spirit. Now, the car or the tiny home or the succulents might enhance your sense of self image, yourself with the lowercase s. In yoga, philosophy, that's what's known as the ahamkara, the identity that unfortunately most of us are so intertwined with and utterly attached to that we barely ever glimpse the Atman, the big self, the capital S self that resides beneath your name, your roles, your achievements, your bank account, your social media presence all of it. And while I know you know that buying a new thing or traveling to some cool new place won't ultimately bring you lasting satisfaction, most of us aren't as immune to the messaging of advertising as we'd like to think. Most of us aren't immune to the pull of craving (laughs) that is just so entrenched in our society. And of course, that's why advertisers, politicians, and cult leaders can become so dangerously powerful because most people don't think that they can be convinced very easily. And yet, of course, we all possess confirmation bias. And most of us don't see the strategies these people are using to persuade us. We're only witnessing the end game. We're only seeing the commercial or seeing the social media posts or watching the YouTube videos and being slowly but very effectively convinced. So a million years ago, I used to teach college rhetoric and composition classes, uh, which I never thought would be so important. I I always knew obviously that rhetoric was critical, but not until 2020 did I discover how absolutely vital it is for everyone to really understand the power of rhetoric. And if you're not familiar, rhetoric is essentially the study of how language is used to persuade, compel, and convince. It's what can convince somebody to to go to war. It's what can convince somebody to hate a whole other group of people. It's what can convince you to feel like you're not good enough just as you are. And interestingly enough, for centuries, it was imperative for the educated class to have a deep understanding of rhetoric because this was the class of rulers and you can't persuade the masses if you don't know how to talk to them. Truly, it ain't what you say, it's how you say it, and how often you say it. So when I taught at University of South Florida about a decade ago, we studied the rhetoric of advertising, and I led an exercise where I asked the freshmen if they felt they were immune to commercials and ads and all that stuff. And of course, they all raised their hands except for maybe one or two. Then I had my students take five minutes to get out their notebook and look at everything that was basically on them, on their personhood in that moment. What was in their backpack or in their purse or in their pockets or on their desk? What were they wearing? And I had them write down all of the brands associated with themselves in that moment. The Starbucks cup on the desk, the Nikes on their feet, the iPhone in their pocket, the Lululemon pants and the USF sweatshirt. Schools are brands too, kids, and academia is big business. And students are paying a very very high price for the product and the most of the most of the frontline workers the teachers are not being paid enough <laughs> you can tell i'm a bitter former english teacher anyway my students were usually surprised and a little defensive at discovering that they weren't as invincible to advertising as they originally thought they held unconscious opinions about what these brands meant the kind of person who carried a designer purse or held keys to a Mercedes. Speaking of Mercedes, this is a weird segue to the wellness world, but I've been ruminating on this event since it happened. At the beginning of 2020, I was at the yoga studio where I work I had just finished teaching my usual Tuesday night class and I was chatting with one of our recent yoga teacher training graduates in the lobby, a really lovely, kind, smart individual uh, who also happens to be an accountant and, you know, have, have a lot of money. And we were talking about money and investments and I mentioned casually that I was thinking of buying a newer used car. Side note, I don't buy brand new cars. It's part of my personal financial philosophy. And then I said to him, though, I don't really need a, a newer car. And he replied without skipping a beat, but you'll feel better about yourself in a better car. And honestly, just that moment has stuck with me for over a year now because I didn't immediately disagree with him. And the more I ruminated on that sentence, you'll feel better about yourself in a better car, the more I sadly realized that in a way he was right. And it's awful, it just felt terrible to realize that, that just like my former college students, I was indoctrinated into the oldest advertising trick in the book, the very same one I mentioned a few moments ago, right? I am not good enough as I am in this moment. In a better car, I would feel better about myself. That would boost my ego. Mm. yummy. So even though, like me, you may consciously reject this idea of consumerism and self-worth and valuation... It's absolutely essential for us to investigate the unconscious ways this gnarly little notion still has its hooks in us. And this is why the unconscious patterning is so important to to dig into because on the conscious surface level, we can all agree like, yeah, advertising is stupid and I, I, I know I have inherent worth and an external object is not going to... Change my inherent self worth. And yet, unconsciously, we make these decisions or we have these emotions or we have these reactions. It's fascinating. And we've also got to be careful for those of us in the wellness world, which if you're still listening, I'm guessing you are a part of in some way. We've also got to be careful that this materialist motto doesn't get transferred to our spiritual heart. It's very sneaky, right? Even for smart and conscious folks like you. So how might that look? Okay, here's an example. Quote, I'm not enough as I am. So if I go on this yoga retreat to Costa Rica, then I'll have found my bliss. Then I'll... Be the kind of person who takes those Instagram photos where they're meditating on the beach or they're in some fancy yoga pose on the beach or wherever. Uh, If I get this thing or get this attainment, then I'll finally be at peace. If I finally get that tiny home filled with succulents, then my restless heart can finally relax. And this is dangerous. This is a dangerous w- pattern of thinking. And ultimately, I would refer to this as the cult of self improvement, which, full disclosure, I'm kind of a big part of as a yoga teacher, meditation teacher, as a writer of yoga books and articles, as a Reiki master, a shadow work guide, all that stuff. I sell online courses. The cult of self-improvement sells the idea that if you buy this workout, this smoothie, this essential oil, this angel-blessed face serum, or what have you, then you'll be happy. Then you'll finally have the missing puzzle piece you've been searching for all along. The if-then formula is still operating. If you do this, then you'll get this result. Now, that's not inherently bad or wrong. I am all for self-improvement, okay? I know the title of this episode sounds um, maybe too scathing, but truly, self-improvement is wonderful. Self-improvement is the fucking jam. It's my jam, and I love fellow journeyers who are on their jam trying to improve themselves as well. My goodness. And what what would be the alternative for us to degrade, to not improve, to be complacent, to think we're perfect already and like we don't have to, I don't know, do anything. We can just keep on with our compulsions and reactions and indulgences. No, no, no. Self-improvement is great. However, I wanted to call out the trap within the self-improvement industry because it's so pervasive and it can be really dangerous. Because if the if-then scenario is certainly viable for workouts and learning new concepts or getting better alignment in yoga poses or eating healthier or sticking to a meditation practice or so many other wonderful life-affirming and life-changing things, when it comes to the ultimate, to truly feeling at peace the if-then formula no longer works. The if-then formula totally falls apart. So again, if you want to have a stronger practice in yoga, if you want to learn proper alignment to support yourself, if you want to learn how to quiet the chatter of your mind, then the, the courses, the classes, the guides, all of that is needed and wonderful. But... Ultimately, your peace of mind is not dependent on anything outside of yourself. Because when we arrive at that state of attaining contentment, there's no more causation. And in fact, I want to correct the sentence that I just said. It's not about attaining contentment. At your heart, you are already content. That is the self with the capital S the atman is content there is a side of yourself what the yogis in the ancient tradition the, the true yogis would call the eternal self that that space is untouched by the whims of circumstance that is the space that is non-judgmental and utterly at peace it's the ahamkara it's the conscious mind the chitta that is you know, totally responding to the world around us, which we have to do because we are alive and we're on this planet. (laughs) So when we work into or arrive at glimpses of the Atman, it's no more, if this happens, then I'll get this and I'll feel good. You know, the yogic principle that happiness does not come from anything outside of yourself, which also happens to be rooted in nearly all spiritual traditions. The temporary satisfaction that you receive from an outside force, whether it's a relationship or a home or a job or a thing, is a band-aid for your self-image, for that lowercase s. And that band-aid is very, very temporary. Have you noticed that? (laughs) <laughs> you already know that a Mercedes or a pair of designer yoga pants will never deliver you the happiness that gets projected on these items, the status with which our culture projects onto them, and therefore ourselves when we're in possession of them, right? That goes back to, you'll feel better about yourself if you're driving a fancier car, then you'll feel fancy. And that's all like swimming in the lowercase s soup of craving and aversion. And so this also extends to people, the validation we feel when we're in a relationship or when we get approval from our peers or when we get a bunch of likes on an Instagram post. Now, of course, I'm not saying you need to become a renunciate and deny yourself all these things, not at all. Pleasure is in fact a part of the four aims of life In the view of yogic philosophy, pleasure known as kama in Sanskrit. And yes, kama as in the Kama Sutra. Pleasure is part of the path. But kama isn't that blind consumerism of more, 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 more. Kama is a deeper, more conscious engagement with the material world, with utilizing our senses to enjoy and to celebrate being alive. If a certain situation, a certain food, a certain object, a certain experience brings you joy and it's not causing harm, then of course, in the yogic view, savor it, relish it, hold gratitude for it. If you're snuggling with your partner, where is your mind? Are you fully inhabiting the sensations of the moment or has your attention veered into the future to thinking about what you're supposed to do later that day or, you know, just thinking about a different scenario? We're not ascetics living in caves. In the yoga tradition, we're what are called householders. We're the ones with one foot in the meditation cave and one foot in the bustling city street. We unroll a yoga mat in the morning and check email afterward. We chant to Mother Dorga and pay our taxes. We handle money and work on our attachments. We're in the soup, and we're also simultaneously aware that we're in the soup of this messy, beautiful life. And so even though you're in the world and you're constantly being bombarded with messages and your energy is being pulled every day in every direction, have you noticed that? You also know that true happiness, true contentment is cultivated from within. True contentment does not exist from attaining the next thing. There is no gaining anything on this journey. It's all right here right now. And I know that might seem counterintuitive to the process of self-improvement, and I'll get to that in just a moment. I recently heard Sadhguru say, that's why it's called realization. There is nothing to attain. It's all here. All you have to do is realize it. Lasting, sustainable contentment is cultivated in us like a flower, and the seed exists within you right now. It's, it's all right here. You just have to water and nurture those seeds. Now, nurturing those seeds involves the methods of practice. Nurturing those seeds of contentment that exist within you in this moment is the process of self-improvement. For many of us, those methods of cultivating contentment are meditation, breath work, shadow work, Chanting, maybe jumping in ice baths, or studying yoga philosophy, or Buddhist Dharma, or the teachings of Jesus, or any number of methods. Every time you practice, you're tending those seeds of inner strength. And the stronger you become from the inside out, the less likely you are to become trapped in craving, and the more likely you'll be able to witness your own ego inflate in the midst of approval from others or some other social construct you know like getting a fancy new car also like if you want a new car get a new car if you want to eat a piece of chocolate cake eat a piece of chocolate cake but be aware be conscious right inhabit that experience enjoy relish that experience don't just do it because it's going to inflate your ego (laughs) so we've got to be careful with this trap it's a common one on the spiritual path. I see it happening with the students who go through the 200 and the 300 hour yoga teacher trainings that I co lead. And really, this trap is the myth that the next thing will save you, that the next thing will turn you into the unstoppable, totally healed, totally enlightened guru image of yourself that your ego has perhaps latched onto. And there we are again, a self concept. The ego loves self concepts. The ego eats self concepts like Pac Man eats those little dots. The ego is fine if your self concept is you trying to eradicate all of your self concepts. Like the ego doesn't care what you want to be, you could want to be a powerful business person with a multi-million dollar corporation. The ego is like, yeah, great, okay, cool. Or, you know, you want to see yourself as this earth goddess figure who walks around barefoot in fields all day and communes with dandelions and oak trees. Your ego's like, yes, awesome. I'm here for it. Let's go. The ego doesn't care what the details are. The ego, it just will morph into whatever self-concept you're craving. And so the ego will morph into a self-image of a very spiritual, egoless person the ego is very sneaky. And so it's all quite paradoxical and and hilarious, frankly, because the truth is, you need to use your methods to cultivate contentment within you. And we return to paradox. You are already perfect, just as you are the Atman that exists within you. When I first heard that in a yoga class about 12 years ago, the teacher said, you know, you're, you're all perfect just as you are. Honestly, I didn't really know what to make of it. I mean, the notion sounded lovely. I'm perfect? Oh, I thank you. <laughs> but what about my judgments toward myself and others? What about my anger? What about my resentments? Surely I've still got a lot of work to do. There's a whole bunch of things to fix in this whole old house of myself before it can be inhabited by bliss and oneness and perfection. There's a saying that swirls around the internet that goes something like, you're allowed to be a masterpiece and a work in progress. And I think that really beautifully taps into this paradox of self-improvement. Paradox is built into so much of Eastern wisdom traditions, yin and yang, purusha and prakriti, birth and death, not held in conflict, but held in communion. And embracing paradox means holding seemingly polar opposites together. Now, it's one thing to intellectually understand that we must embrace opposites in order to transcend duality, but it's another to actually live from that space and truly feel it. I've been working on this process for a long long time for for a dozen years. So if you find this challenging too, I just wanted to say that you are not alone and it doesn't mean you're bad or broken and you are no good at this path. As one of my teachers, Manasa Kanithi says, patience and persistence. Patience and persistence. And paradox brings us back around to the two selves that coexist within you, the lowercase s self and the uppercase s self, the part of you that is identified with your name and roles and all that jazz, and then the eternal part of you. A lot of modern spirituality has demonized the lowercase s self with ideas that you've got to destroy your ego. But the ego, the ahamkara, is not necessarily bad. It just depends on how you use it and how you view it. Most of the time, we're so completely enmeshed with our own egos, we can't see any any other existence around them. But if you can step just to the side of the ego or peer just beneath the surface, you can embrace that you're more than your identity your body, your thoughts. You could perhaps recognize that the ego is merely a useful tool, a vehicle to experience this precious human life. Maybe you glimpse this communion between selves for a nanosecond, maybe a moment, maybe a minute. That's how it goes, little by little, patience and persistence. You are both. You are all of it. And in the next episode, we'll dive even deeper into these concepts of desire and craving and identity and the ego and how we can work with all of this from the yogic lens to have that contentment, run through our veins just as blood runs through our veins and so for now i just want to close with one of my very very favorite quotes by shri nizagadatta maharaj who says love is knowing i am everything wisdom is knowing i am nothing and in between the two My life moves. So once again, thank you so much for listening to the Tender Heart of Strange Times audio series from the Yoga Writer podcast. So much thanks to my patrons for making this podcast possible. And if you felt inspired or nourished by this episode, please. Give us a follow or a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And I will talk to you soon.